This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Vic Galloway. I do programs for the BBC. I'm a journalist. And if you're at Billy Bragg and Wilco Johnson's events, you'll know exactly who I am. And I'm sorry, I'm still here. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for coming along. Uh, we're here to discuss uh, this wonderful, weighty tome, The Age of Bowie, with uh, author, writer, broadcaster, cultural commentator and critic, Paul Morley. Thank you. I've come extremely well prepared with tons and tons of questions. I'm probably going to ask about three of them and he's going to talk all the way through. But that's what you're here for. Um, the Age of Bowie is a total outpouring. It's, it's emotional. It's, it's devoted. I saw somewhere that it was, it was part biography, part memoir, part love letter. Yeah, I like the parts. Yes. Yeah. I always do a part something, part something, part something. Mm. Important. But it, it really is a, a, a love letter as well. It's a labor of love. Um, tell us just, when did the idea for the book come about? Was it directly after his death, or were you sort of working up to doing something? I'd always had in mind writing something. At the Victoria and Albert Museum exhibition a few years ago, uh, 2013, they put me up as a kind of installation over the weekend to write a book in a weekend where I sat in, in, you know, as people were coming in and behind me was the screen where the words were, which I quite liked, a sort of te a, a challenge, um, a system almost to write a book. Could I do it? And that put in mind the idea, oh, I've got a lot to say about David Bowie. The, the book never came to anything as such, although some of it has made it into this book. And I did like those, um, you know, a set of conditions, a bit like David Bowie and, and some of those, you know, the Brian Eno's of the world, David Burns would make their records in the 70s, um, set yourself a challenge. Uh, with a book in particular, once you, you're, you're off and running, you, you, you can't change your mind, which I quite liked as well. I mean, I gave myself 10 weeks to write, to write That's the book. That's you it. Say, you say in the book, um, an album is, you know, Bowie would make an album in 10 weeks. I can write a book in 10 weeks. Well, it was, it, it, not only would, would he make an album in 10 weeks, he was making those albums in 10 weeks in the 70s when he looked near death. So on one hand, he's skeletal. He looks like he's been raised by insects. He, he, he seems like it's all over. But he's delivering young Americans, station to station, low in 10 weeks often because th that was the budget or that was the, th th their conditions that they decided I w in eight weeks I will make an album and it turns out to be heroes. And also in a way more close to home it was a little bit like how we used to write because you know obviously I wrote for the New Musical Express in the 1970s and there was an element of that's how the writing about music was in the 70s. It was very fast, it, it was half crazed sometimes but every week under extraordinary um, deadlines and, and chaos every week this wonderful publication appeared with this wonderful writing, wonderful photography beautifully laid out about artists like David Bowie and of course for better or worse and it's neither good nor bad it just simply is, those days have gone but it f I figured because Bowie had exploited that world very well himself and was a fan of the music press, used the music press well in a way recreated some of the conditions of the music press with the exhibition which he viewed as like one big profile uh, that could travel the world you know pretty much for all time I thought it would be a nice way to recreate some of those circumstances how we used to write well now in the 70s I'd write 5,000 words about Cabaret Voltaire and Subway Sect 
And then it became apparent that if I sat down, sat down I've, I've realized over the years, if I sit down to write 5,000 words now, I can easily write 55,000 words. In this case, even more, because it, it, I, I, with age, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your view of me, has come this ability and facility to, to, to write some words. And obviously with David Bowie, um, it's a subject that splinters into so many subjects in a way that, 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 that it was obvious that, that I could do it. And, and also it was my, my response, it was the response I wanted to do because on the day he died, I was being called non-stop by radio and television programs mm -hmm. looking for that thing that almost a journalist has become in the modern world. They're almost becoming, because journalism to some extent is dying, their new career is almost a, as professional mourners. And as, as more and more of the rock stars and the celebrities die, you find yourselves being called upon to go on ITV News Live, talk to someone who has probably only heard one song by the person you're talking about who's in a hurry to get to the weather, and you are meant to compress very quickly lamentation and wailing with an expert summary. Yeah, uh, well, um, and and got, they must have been desperate in Scotland because they even asked me. <laughs> they, I got my, you know, reporting Scotland, you know, my 10 seconds on. Well, I was turning it down. Do you know what I mean? Right, I, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I was there you go. <laughs> Apologies for that, Vic, but I was turning it down. I wasn't going to do it. I, I, I did, in the end, I end up doing one because I, I just happened to be in the BBC. I just happened to be in Broadcasting House that day doing something else entirely different. And so I got trapped by front row, uh, John Wilson. So I ended up being, I mean, he said, oh, Tilda Swinton's going to be on, it's going to be amazing. So I foolishly thought, oh, great. Mm -hmm. Tilda Swinton wasn't on. <laughs> and, and also that you would have a lot of time to talk about David Bowie. Oh, great, a lot of time. Didn't have a lot of time. And afterwards I came out and I thought, it's, it's what always happens, which is why I stopped doing those things to an extent, is I come out feeling an immense amount of, of annoyance with myself that I didn't get to say all the things I wanted to say. And then it occurred to me, well, obviously a book is how I can do those things. And Bowie loved books. You know, one of the last things in the book, not giving the ending away, is his, is his fantastic reading list. He loved books were like his gods. And, and that whole craving for, for knowledge and intellectual discovery. Um, and he was a great writer himself in all sorts of ways. So it seemed to be that, for me, my generation, my aim, my, my response to David Bowie, a book was the way to do it. Well, yeah, I, and, and what a book. And as I say, it's, it's emotional. It has way more of you in it than I was expecting, not just your personal opinions, but actually tales of your own life, your, your childhood. I mean, and, and initially, tell us how you first discovered Bowie. I mean, John Peel, I take it. Well, That's what you say. Well, funnily enough, where I decided to begin was not so much when I first heard the music of David Bowie or saw him, but heard the name. Mm -hmm. Because that's a fascinating moment when a name suddenly materializes in your life. And I can almost remember that, like, vividly. Because it was an odd name, because in some senses it was quite plain, David. And the Bowie was sort of interesting. And obviously it was John Peel that said it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the first time you would hear the name, about 1970. And, and, and that was just after he'd had a hit with Space Oddity. But of course, back then, a few months, the whole world had changed and it all already seemed like he might be a, um, a one-hit wonder. Like that was a novelty hit, a bit like Peter Sarstedt, Where Do I Go To My Lovely, one of those kind of songs. And that he might, it might all have been over for him. So he, he had a different reputation in those early 70s. And then, and then I kind of followed him in, in, with increasing intensity between 1970 and 1972. And as a teenager, to be, to be around when you're, one of your first shows you see is David Bowie and you're around when Ziggy Stardust happens, which is his arrival at fame after many, many years of trying and being thwarted, he arrives. It was an extraordinary kind of combination of, of events and, and moments. 
So I was uh, in that sense. I mean, I love the fact that so many different people come to Bowie in so many different ways at different times, different ages, different parts of the world. But that was my entry into my Bowie. So obviously that, that was something else I considered important in writing this book, is that I wasn't going to tell you anything about David Bowie in a way. I was going to find out for myself, and it would be my Bowie, mm -hmm. in a way that you would discover a country or a city. You would, you would be a travel book. So you're not saying, this is exactly this city, this country. What you're saying is, this is my view of him, what I've loved about him, uh, how I found him, how I think about him, and, and, and I think there'll be areas where that connects with your own experience, but I'm definitely not saying in any way this is the definitive David no, Bowie. No, and you say that, you say that these are my Bowies, plural. Yeah. Um, because this is the, the, the major theme that runs through the book from beginning to end is the myriad characters that he um, represented, but also sort of put upon himself. And it, there's a line when you say um, it's almost by putting on these characters, he could really express himself. Um, and, and, and this book is all about the Bowies that have connected to you, of which there are many. Well, what I, I, what I basically say is that I'm, I'm going I'm to offer you glimpses of, of a David Bowie, almost like you're on a speeding train going through this city or this country, and you're seeing glimpses of Bowie. And so it's, it's, it, there's, a, there's an element of that. Some of them are more famous than others. Some of them are particularly personal. And, and hopefully they, uh, over, over the um, length of the book, they, they gather momentum and they, and they, they come together to give you an impression of David Bowie. Because another thing that occurred to me thinking about what happened in, in those days after he died was obviously there's been an awful lot written about Bowie, an awful lot of books written about Bowie, but, 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 but by the very nature of him dying, the entire geography, the entire architecture of David Bowie had altered. And I was interested in that because, you know, that, that view that, you know, this was the 60s, this was the 70s, this was the 80s, then that and that. It, all of that changes in a way, it becomes one shape and, and the chronology almost is irrelevant and, and the music becomes a different sort of way that you think of it. You don't think of it uh, the way you did if you grew through it or if you're looking back on it. It's very different and you, you get more of a sense of the way his mind worked that even in the late 60s he was sort of thinking in the way he was towards the end of his life when he was in these late 60s and vice versa and sometimes he was following up albums 20 years after he'd done one. And there was this incredible need he had to change and, and, and express his... It was almost like, you know, because he was frustrated and disappointed with the realities around him, you know, he decided to invent his own realities and, and, and hence he would be constantly changing because they constantly needed to be, to be changed. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to know, the, the format of the book is, is quite strange in that you have chapter one to seven. But very readable. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Unputdownable, ladies and gentlemen. Do not uh, be put off by the word strange. Uh, <laughs> There's chapters one to seven, and then there's a, a section called uh, David Bowie's 1970s and 140 scenes featuring deletions, omissions, and oversights. And after, the, you know, those, you go back to chapters eight to ten. Can you explain why you did it that way? Um, well, the 70s I did in, in 140. I did that really on purpose to an extent, you know, 140 characters, but in this sense, 140 glimpses and scenes and, 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 and admitted that there would be an awful lot missing, both for length reasons. Because when, when, I, when I started the book, I thought, I'm determined this time that it's not going to be 70s heavy. Because these books always sort of 70s and then it's all over. After the first three tracks of Let's Dance, it all seems to be over. And I never really felt like that. And I wanted it, obviously, to have a, a better sense of balance. Um, but, but then when you're in the 70s, you realize, oh my God, it is taking over. So I had to reduce it a little bit. So there were deletions and then there were omissions and there were oversights because there's tons and tons of stuff that I'm always finding out, which I, I, I kind of like because that's mm -hmm. what I'm saying. It's like everybody has their, 
their biographical interpretation of Bowie. It's available online now, so everybody can instantly create a kind of narrative of David Bowie very instantly. But I wanted it to be very personal. It's something I've always done with my books, put them through a kind of prism, mm -hmm. uh, whether, it's a, uh, whether it's a city or a, a, a memoir, uh, a region of the country, a history of music, a group like Joy Division. The books always follow the same sort of sense that I'm, I'm breaking them up into intersections, into fragments. Uh, I'm, I'm considering them in a certain order that's more mental than it is chronological. I'm piecing together the story in a different sort of way. And it creates a kind of speed and energy for me that I think was very important with David Bowie because I think you know, one of the most exciting things about him was the way that he managed to transmit beauty and imagine the imagination and 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 singing it always through an extraordinary feeling of energy and, and speed mm -hmm. uh, and i wanted to get that across in a book which of course is quite difficult because sometimes a book fixes itself in place it becomes fixed which is something you really also don't want to do with bowie you don't want to fix him down so it's always a t an attempt for me with a with the, with a book i do to keep the sense of everything still moving and being provisional it's not quite settling down because the subjects that, that i tend to tackle I don't think really require or want to be or needed to be or set out to be uh, put in a box. You know, they didn't want to be pigeonholed. They, 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 there's always a sense they're still moving and changing shape and everything is becoming something else, especially with Bowie. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess it's a technique I use uh, when I write these kind of books to I indicate that, that, that this isn't going to be definitive. It's not going to be fixed mm -hmm. in chronological order. It's not going to be fixed in chapters. It's, not, it, it's always going to be moving around like his mind, you know. You always strike me, um, maybe the terminology is wrong here, but you strike me as a futurist, and Bowie strikes me, well, struck me as a, uh, as a futurist as well. Is it that, that continual search for the next thing, the next buzz, but also the next culturally important thing, does that stem? Does your interest in that stem from your, you know, love of Bowie? It, it, it definitely stems from a period in popular music and, and popular culture that was happening in, in obviously, Starting in the 50s, I mean that's why I call it the age of Bowie in a way, because because his his arrival, his gr his his growing up, his his connection with pop music and popular culture sort of coincides with all the movement. Whether he's whether he's on the inside or or just on the outside, he's always there or thereabouts as it's changing. So from the late 50s through the 60s, 70s, 80s, he's always there or thereabouts, and it was always about creating a future, because everything seemed to be you know bogged down in the past. It seemed to be about the past. It seemed to be lacking a sense of possibility what could happen next you know after the war you know th th that sort of grimness and that gloom and obviously popular culture came along and offered people this, extra this extraordinary sense of possibility of, of what you could do with your life mm -hmm. of how you could create your own realities using what at the time especially seemed a particularly trivial and, and you know ephemeral uh, popular culture but but people like bowie instantly recognized that it, it did have the qualities and conditions of art and a lot of people like bowie in the 60s made art using pop music and music and and, and uh, composition as their material and i always found that quite fascinating you know that sense of um, they had they had the sensibility of an artist but what they found the most interesting thing happening around them at the time was popular music and that's what they wanted to do so you had those extraordinary musicians at the time and it definitely was a sense of uh, the future and they they seem to be suggesting a confidence in the future which you needed at the time because that's all you want you want confidence that everything you know you need a lot of it now confidence that everything will be okay because confidence is what the future is about if you're confident like Bowie sometimes would say we'd only got five years left to live 
But on the other hand, there was, there, there was a weird confidence that he was even prepared to go five years into the future. So there was a confidence about it that I think was very contagious. You know, yeah. There will be a future. And instead of letting the people who've looked after our future so far look after it, why don't we let the romantics, the dreamers, the artists look after the future? Uh, and, and make it shaped, you know, let it take its shape from, from the, the fantasies of artists. And that was, that was also very, um, um, you know, contagious. And also that the, 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 they were doing it through pop songs, mm. which was, the, you know, the, the, the condition of the day. It was on top of the pops, it was on the radio. Was, you know, whether they knew it or not, they were playing these extraordinary revolutionary pieces of music uh, as pop music. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, it sounded like they were singing nice, happy songs, but, uh, you know, elsewhere they were being quite apocalyptic and quite dark and, and that was also very um, you know uh, important in a way that, that, that they had a kind of depth uh, and that people like Bowie were using pop music to smuggle through very complicated emotional responses to the world uh, and transmit them direct to teenagers you know it was, it was it was an extraordinary time for that you know I, I also love the way that you sort of uh, the concept that you have the idea that that Bowie signaled and predated the internet itself. The, the <laughs> idea that, um, you know, sexuality, the ambi ambiguous nature of sexuality, fame, celebrity, ambition, dreams, all encapsulated, he, he encapsulated them, something that he did 40 odd years before I the think internet. It's, what I was saying is the type of thinking that he did is, 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 has turned out again and again to be quite prescient and to think ahead to when people would have more, more and more people. It became more and more distributed this way of thinking. So once upon a time, it's a few people thinking this way, representing it through their appearance, through their performance, through their music, through their art. And that what they're basically thinking about is what, is, what if the world is connected like the world is now? But they don't know that, you know, that, that that's not happening or is yet to happen, but they're already beginning to think it. Uh, and, and it's an attitude that is more prevalent now about, about the idea of fame, about the idea of celebrity, about the idea of sharing ideas, about the idea of constructing reality around you, for better or worse. And those, the, the people like Bowie were thinking that way even then, before, before those you know, instruments and techniques and tools had, had, had been invented. So I think it's, it's a mindset. And I think you could go back through centuries and all artists and entertainers and dreamers t tend to have the same mindset. It's just with the internet era and the communications revolution that that sensibility sort of been distributed in a wider sense, for better or worse. You know, mm -hmm. it leads to all sorts of problems. You know, the the smothering of, of of knowledge by opinion and 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 Donald Trump. But but effectively, it is it, it is if in in the more idealistic sense. And Bowie was troubled by that sometimes about 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 you know how how do you actually affect real change in the world through being a, a, an artist. But I, th I think there is a way that he anticipated the potential for actually constructing reality around you through, through, through the imagination. And it's certainly something that, that struck us at the time, those of us that were fans and those of us that were sort of inspired by him, you know, to take it slightly serious, you know, mm -hmm. that, that pop music wasn't necessarily just, you know, the, the Osmonds and Alvin Stardust, that, that, it, that it could have this deeper this dark thing and still be pop music. But you this know? has been your life's work in a way, isn't it? Is to... <laughs> is, to is, that, is, that is that it? No, to demonstrate, <laughs> to demonstrate that there is depth in... Um, well, it, it, I, I guess we grew up into it. The idea that once upon a time, the idea of getting onto top of the pops was a huge thing. And then that, that moment in the late 70s and early 80s when the weirder more, I mean, David Bowie absolutely insisted that pop music should be weird. And that was a huge influence. Mm -hmm. And there was also that moment because of Bowie and because of Starman and appearing on top of the pops and that revelation that it was. And the fact that there was this program that you could appear on if you had a hit. And that was the rule. So if you had a hit, however weird it was, you kind of got on top of the pops. And then later, when, with your public images and your associates and your, 
you know, your orange juices and your Joy Divisions and New Orders, you know, getting on top of the pops became a, became a big thing because that was the way that you were getting through to many, many people and, and, and you know, in an idealistic sense, making the world a better place because your feelings were stronger, the, 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 the songs were better with what you believed. Mm -hmm. And so Top of the Pops became this kind of weird target even for Public Image Limited, getting on top of the pops is, is quite a revolutionary moment in a weird sort of way. It's an odd signal to have on a family entertainment show, you know. So for yeah. a while in the 70s and 80s, we took that kind of thing very seriously because Bowie had had that kind of passion. You know, he, he didn't, you know, he had an avant-garde sensibility, but he also had this kind of very unorthodox and unexpected middle-of-the-road sensibility. You know, he wanted to be uh, successful. He wanted to have millions of people. Well, a uh, quote that I, um, out of many millions of quotes you could have from this book, he wants to crea create his own world, but be adored by millions. Um, I, I thought that was fascinating, and it pretty much exactly what happened. He, he succeeded in that. And, and then he does have that tendency as an avant-gardist, as a futurist, as a, as a radical thinker, that when he has success, and it seems to be this might fix him in place, he sabotages it. You know, that wonderful period in the, in the 70s when he's, he's doing well in America, he has fame, he has the young Americans, he's becoming almost a Billy Joel, an Elton John, and he sabotages it, you know, directly or indirectly. He, he, he doesn't want to belong that sort of securely to anything. He doesn't want people to expect what they're going to get from him. He wants to keep surprising them. It's, it's absolutely innate in his thinking that, that mm -hmm. he, he must do the unexpected. And, 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 and keep experimenting, you know, however popular it is, but keep experimenting, but with the idea that he doesn't want to lose the audience because he's been there once before. You know, the late 60s and early 70s, he was experimenting, he didn't really have an audience. I always think that Changes was, was the big moment because Changes came out early 71 and of course it wasn't a hit, you know, and it's, it's difficult for, to think of that now, but it wasn't a hit, it didn't even make the top 100 in a world where Westlife have 14 number ones. <laughs> when Changes came out, it didn't make the one, and I think he was so angry, he was so infuriated, so resentful, so annoyed that he almost willed it, it, it later that, that he would have a hit because how could this song that he knew was a great song and would eventually be a beloved song, uh, it needed to be a hit. He needed to have hits. He wanted hits, you know, but he, he, but he also had this fantastic, which I loved, avant-garde sensibility. Yeah, well, I'm talking to Billy Bragg recently and, uh, and someone asked a question at an event we were doing and they, they, they said, you know, what do you think of Sleaford Mods? And he said his bit and he says, well, and so what's the difference between what you're doing and what Sleaford Mods? He's like, I was on top of the pops. <laughs> Loads. I was on top of the yeah. pops quite a few times. And that was straight into the living rooms of millions of people. Well, that, 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 talking a bit about the internet, this was the days when an event like that was so unexpected and so unusual that it, and it, and it, and it, and it transmitted itself almost by word of mouth in a way. Because you would be, the, the things took, which I love, they, things took on their own myth. Because you'd be ringing people up and you'd be talking to people from public phone boxes as well, saying, did that really happen? You know, and, and the thing got talked up and became bigger than it possibly really was in a way, it, because the myth became bigger. So instead of it becoming like something like Starman on Top of the Pops now, almost happens every five minutes, every day, that kind of thing. So to create that kind of event, you need different sort of approaches, different techniques. Back then there were extraordinary events, there were special occasions, there were, there were enormous moments in cultural change and you could literally feel culture change, you could literally feel your thinking change. Uh, and so they were more important than just pop songs, you know, they were, they were transmitting incredibly complicated pieces of information directly to, to young people when they were the most um, susceptible, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, the age of Bowie, is, is the age of Bowie the, the kind of the age of pop in a way, the age of, it's the end of Bowie's life, the end of the album which you, you, you kind of 
throw that idea into well I, 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 I don't well. want to say the end of the album uh, as as such but what I'm saying is wherever it's going and wherever it's it happens to be at the moment it seems odd they're still called albums for instance you mm -hmm. know I mean I, I think I mentioned to you before because I, I badger everybody with this I can't bear it when Beyonce and Frank Ocean's uh, latest genies as I'm trying to call them not getting anywhere are called visual albums you know it's like it's really clumsy and ugly I don't like it, 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 it it's unfortunate that I just happen to be of a generation that takes those things seriously I don't like it I don't like it on Spotify when playlists are called things like driving home at the weekend you know that's not a genre for me do you know what I mean so uh, it, it, I, all I'm trying to do is set out a series of probes that, that pop music and, and rock music and entertainment and celebrities reached extraordinary moments and extraordinary shape-shifting uh, stage but yet we're still using the language of the 20th if not the 19th century to describe it so I, th I suppose I wanted to use the idea of write, writing about Bowie to also propel a few kind of provocations about, about where we might or might not be. <clears throat> and the idea of the album, I thought it was interesting with David Bowie because he'd grown up through the, the, the two-sided vinyl, 33 and a third thing, becoming itself. Then in the 70s, it very much sort of established itself as this extraordinary series of records of which he is very much part of almost once a year. And then in the 80s, it sort of disintegrates a little bit, becomes the CD, which is not quite the same thing, and then it becomes nothing, which is definitely not the same thing. <laughs> and Bowie's living all through that. But even at the end, so he begins with Skiffle, in a way. He begins in a Skiffle group. Mm -hmm. But he also ends 50, 55, 60 years later, unlike anybody else, in, in the middle of that internationalist electronic transmission of the of the of, of, of the, the hip-hop almost you know it's like that is where he's ended up that's an extraordinary thing to be able to do as an artist to keep yourself so modern that you can keep up to date and understand but because in a way he set the precedent for a lot of what's happened now in terms of the way of making a release a, a genie mm -hmm. and you also uh, a special occasion you, you, know. you also say perhaps you, we could call an album an ego an ego, yes. Or, a, or just a release, as in a release of... A release, I like release. Because the release, we could understand, the new release, yeah. I'm trying really hard, it's getting nowhere. <laughs> but in a way, but that's significant in a way, because in a way we've lost that conceptual framework that I think created a lot of the world that Bowie moved in. There was always a response very quickly, conceptually, theoretically, to what he was doing that helped him and people like him understand where they were and why they needed to change and, and where they'd got. And so I, I just think um, in this world now that it's filled with the most extraordinary inventions and the most extraordinary possibilities for transmitting entertainment and art and, and your mind and your thoughts, that the categories are fairly dull, you know. So mm -hmm. I, I wanted to use the opportunity within the book to do that kind of thing I used to do once upon a time, again, in, in honouring the way Bowie moved, just to suggest certain things, just to, not necessarily to be dogmatic about it, but just to say, isn't it maybe time we call these things something else? Because they're not two-sided vinyl albums anymore. They're not built that way. They could be any length. They don't have to be finished. I love the way that the, the can use just transmit bits of signals and bits of information and bits of material. That seems very much how... Bowie liked to operate in a way, transmitting bits and pieces that aren't necessarily fixed. Uh, and, and yet the idea of calling it an album doesn't seem to do justice to that kind of strange kind of momentum that's being picked up in that world. So I, I hesitate to use the word, the, end of the, the phrase, the end of the album, because it makes me sound like I'm being all sentimental <coughs> for, for a golden age, which I don't actually believe. I think it was an age on the way to somewhere else. But what I would really like to see is, is, a, is, a, is a new way of approaching some of this, the, the different ways of talking about the the genies. Yeah, the egos, the releases. Um, <laughs> it's not working, if, is it? If, um, if Bowie was sort of, if Bowie had been born born 10 years ago or, or perhaps, you know, 15 years ago and was 
let's say, 15 to 20 years ago and was really coming into his own as an artist now, um, with his constant desire for new knowledge, do you think the internet would um, be his friend? Would he just lap it up and b be an even greater artist? Well, he was, he, was, uh, he was very aware of the internet almost too early in a way. Mm. I mean, when he started doing um, his... Um, I don't think they were even called blogs when he was doing them. It was almost just before they were actually even called blogs. In the and 90s. they were quite personal as they well. They were very personal to the extent that you did wonder sometimes whether he was really doing them. You know, there was the great Mirabelle articles in the 70s that were actually ghosted by Cherry Vanilla that I print a, a, a two or three of in the, in the book as if Bowie is speaking and he was writing in this teeny bop magazine, which I really liked because they could or could not have been David Bowie. And to some extent, everything is, is could or could not be David Bowie, including his own interviews. Mm. And I felt that with the, the sailor. He called himself Sailor, which I thought was interesting as well. So he was a very aware of it and very, uh, you know, sort of anticipating the world that we're now in where... Um, uh, celebrities and, and stars are doing their own PR almost uh, directly to the to the to their um, audience. And he wanted a bank. He, you know, he wanted a credit card with his face on, so he got a big big brother. Uh, and he lost interest very quickly, as he often tended to do. But I think he he, he very much was aware and said it often in the face of incredulity from people like Jeremy Paxman that it was going to change everything. He knew pretty much, and I think he even underestimated how much it was going to change. And it, it is interesting that idea. I thought what you were going to ask me is if he'd come in 10, 15 years ago, what, what, kind, of, what kind of artist would he be? But, you know, I, I, I often think that I don't really see any musical um, connections with, with uh, David Bowie now. I, I, th I think he probably would have been more like the guy that, um, that invented Pokemon. Well, this you is know. what I was going to say. I mean, if, if, if kids are, are, are kids less interested in, in music these days, is music not well, such a big thing? So well, is a future Bowie well, the a uh, game maker? Well, the game maker, because Pokemon actually, I could, I could hear the groan there, because obviously you're thinking about... But if you actually look at the original intentions and the original conceptions of the guy whose name I unfortunately can't remember nor pronounce, if I could remember... Of, of creating Pokemon. It wasn't basically about creating a kind of reality. It was, it was based on him collecting insects as a child and he was creating, a, you know, using engineering techniques to create this extraordinary fantasy. And the engineer has become, in a way, the star now. The engineer with lacking poetic imagination. The codis. So shame, yeah, exactly. And, and to an extent, you know, it's, it's impossible to, you know, you can't imagine David Bowie coming along and being born in 1990 and then writing those kind of songs and being that kind of pop, pop musician, not least because the ability to create the special occasion and the event is gone, it's drowned, and, and he had the opportunity to be in an area where there were very few and you could, you could actually make that happen. And he, 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 his, his, his need for attention and to be original and to be subversive couldn't really cope in a world where it's very difficult to elbow your way through unless you end up doing it in a, in a kind of reality television sort of way, which, which tends to reduce it. So I often think he, he, he probably encoding, probably in some kind of weird engineering, in a way that actually hasn't been done yet. In the book, I actually say that in the era that's about to happen, and I think he felt it, that you know, we, we, we feel we've been through a lot in the last 50, 100 years in terms of entertainment and show business and cinema and music. But, but to some extent, it's only just beginning. And he lived through the black and white era. This is literally the beginning. And he was Charlie Chaplin. So what's mm. about to happen is going to be the most extraordinary ways that you can use the combination of your imagination and technology to create these, these you know, uh, other realities, you know, to the extent of, of which takes, you know, which is the real one, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could lose myself in a David Bowie reality, and I did do time and time again, where I liked the idea that, that once his reality seemed better than this reality, you know. Um, David Bowie is that extraordinary exhibition at the, the V&A. I actually saw it in Groningen at the Eurosonic mm. Festival earlier mm. this year. 
about two days after he died as well, yeah, was, yeah. which made it even more extraordinary. Yeah. Um, David Bowie is dot, 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 runs through the book as well. Y you're continually, I mean, there are entire, you know, three, four, five pages at a time with just lists of David Bowie is, David Bowie is, and different descriptions. Um, how much of a companion piece to the exhibition is this book? Well, or is, yeah. You know, I, 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 I titled the exhibition, and I was an, uh, what, what ended up being called an artistic advisor, although I particularly preferred the phrase David Bowie's representative on earth <laughs> that, I was, that I was once described by someone close to David Bowie. So I'm going to take that one, and uh, yeah. that one does better than genies. But, but what, 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 you know, being involved in the exhibition, there was a sense where I, I could feel the sense that David Bowie didn't want it to be like the Hard Rock Cafe. He didn't want that kind of memorabilia. He wanted it almost to be a performance, which it's become. It's, it's, it's him still touring the world. You know, mm. I love the fact that next January, it, it opens in Tokyo. It's going to be insane, you know. And um, he wanted that sense that the exhibition, I think one of the reasons he sort of asked me to get involved, I do believe was a little element of that, uh, the, the, the old style rock journalist that tended to be a bit, you know, gonzo, uh, a bit provocative. So that it didn't settle down into be too academic, too sterile. It was, it was floating through it. There was another way of reading David Bowie. So yes, you had your templates that described a, a piece you know, from a, a certain period in, in, a, in a very museum-type way. But running through it, you had what, what, what became this David Bowie is manifesto. I wrote a manifesto. I like mm. writing manifestos. And I wrote a manifesto, David Bowie is manifesto. And it was one of the greatest collaborations I've ever had because you never knew with, with David Bowie whether, whether you approved of something or not. So even if he didn't, you never quite knew. And if he did, you didn't quite know. You had to somehow sense if he did or didn't. And I decided very early on that he had approved this. Uh, and he never sort of disagreed. He never seemed to sort of disagree and loved, from what I can tell, the emergence of, of an increasing amount of David Bowie is. And one of the things I loved about the David Bowie is, is that it was a way that I could get across an incredible amount of information about the different types of being he was, the different type of musician he was. He wasn't just a musician, he wasn't a rock star at all in a way. He was all these different sort of things and you could come at it in a kaleidoscopic way and again create the energy and the rhythm which I thought was important. Uh, and, and I felt that it was something that I wanted to put throughout the book because there, I remember coming up with the David Bowie is and it was very much that David Bowie just is. What is he? He just is. Mm. And then I could go, in, you know, insane. I mean, I did, I did uh, one of the things that I loved in uh, as someone who did, you know, for those that don't know, because it is an incredibly long amount of time ago now, but I did the, the marketing and the merchandise of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And as someone once said, for all the billions of words that I've written, I will be remembered for Frankie Say Relax, you know. Mm. But, but you don't often get those opportunities to do that kind of thing. And Bowie was very much a salesman in a way, and he, he liked merchandise, he liked marketing. And I got this opportunity to kind of do a follow-up to the Frankie Goes to Hollywood campaign, almost like 30 years later, with David Bowie. So instead of Frankie Say, it was David Bowie Is, you know, and I did, we did all the, the, the merchandise, the David Bowie Is merchandise, you know, which I, I actually wanted to put in the museum. So that that was the last room in the, in the exhibition. Was the merchandise? You went through. Yeah, it seemed to make the most sense as you, as you ended this, this extraordinary sort of snap, series of snapshots of his, of his aura, if you like, that, that, that really where you ended up was, 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 was him selling himself almost. You know, it was, it was the most honest thing, but they didn't like that, so it was moved away. But, you know, it just seemed to be, I loved um, as a writer the possibility of, of, of creating these David Bowie's as, as, as a kind of rhythm as well. And, and you can do all sorts of playful things with it. With it. it suited Bowie's mentality, I think. The, the book is playful. I mean, and, and it breaks up uh, narrative often with a, you know, 
good old-fashioned rock biog. It's just chunks of text, and then they did this, and then he did that, and then they did this. And the book isn't, isn't like that at all. I mean, it's, it's full of facts and knowledge and, and, and detail, but there's also a real playful nature to it. I mean, how long did it actually take you then? We, <laughs> we, 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 and, and when did you start and finish? Because, I mean, what we are now, the 25th well, of August, it, and I, he died on the 10th of January. Yeah. I mean, it took me ten swift we work. It took me 10 weeks. And I no, it I, did. It did it actually did, it did. I checked the emails because I know no, no one believes me. So maybe one day I'll have to wow. put, them, put them out as, the, as you do these days in the Corbyn world. You have to put things out. And, you know, yeah, honestly, I did, I, 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 did, I did get a seat, you know. Yeah. And, um, but, but, but in a way, it, it was it, the, the heightened reality of everything, I think, made it work. And the fact that I've been thinking about him a lot. I've been thinking about him a lot because of the exhibition. <clears throat> I've been thinking about, about a lot during the time since. Because also, one of, the great, my, my, one of my great jobs now, which I, I, I love as a job, uh, is that I am the only expert in the world on David Bowie's. <laughs> so, that, you know, the Tokyo exhibition has to call me, because they try and do their own. And I love sitting back and having a, a quiet snigger as they fail miserably. Because it's actually a bit of an art, oddly enough. I know it doesn't seem it, but it actually is a bit of an art to come up with them. So eventually, all the, uh, well, a lot of the um, museums around the world where it's being shown eventually have to sort of come and, and ask me to do a few more David Bowie's. So I've become a weird expert in this kind of strange uh, career of, of the only one on the planet who can do, do David Bowie's. So I've done a few for, for Japan that I quite like. So 10 weeks, I've checked. Because of the conditions, because of the fact that I, 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 I now have an age, I can write at that speed, because I loved the subject, because the subject kept splintering off into wonderful directions, uh, because that gave me then an opportunity to structure the book in a certain way, because there were you know, deviations and detours and, 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 and possible routes that I didn't take, but, but just like Bowie was suggested. And, and so eventually I, I presumed that was beginning to create what I wanted, which is as much an impression of his mind through my mind as uh, the definitive story. And that, then that happened. And then that happened. I mean, one of the things I do in the 140 um, scenes in the 1970s is then it becomes he is blah, 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 because uh, what I find interesting about biographies is how many times can you mention in the biography the name of the person you're writing about? I thought, well, I think by now I deserve that to call him... That breaks a world record, yeah. that one, well, definitely. Now, but, I've, but now I've, I've earned the right to call him he. Yes, right. So it becomes he is, you know, mm -hmm. and then it is he is. And that, that then, it was a decision. It was a bit like, you know, the way Bowie and Eno would use oblique strategies, which I, I did use. I, I've always used oblique strategies. The, the picking of a card and, 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 and following the instructions. It, you know, to some extent, some of the David Bowie's have that own, their own quality of that within the exhibition itself, and they, they altered some of the texture of what the exhibition is. By if you picked a card and it said, don't write a book about David Bowie, though, that would have been pretty tricky. Luckily, there isn't one in the box that yeah. says that, you know. <laughs> but there are some beauties, and uh, I, I did use them. And, 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 I, and I think what happened was once I'd made a decision, I was, I w that's the decision. So the he is, you know, after a while you think, oh, God, uh, you know. And, and, but no, that was the decision. And I wanted to stick with that decision a bit like they would then because back then it was slightly different in the sense that you made an album and that was that moment, that was a record of your, you know, age and where you were at that time and then you moved to the next one and you could afford to move, move that quickly and make some mistakes to find where to go next. So I, I decided very quickly that it was important that even if occasionally I might be in a cul-de-sac, I would stick with the routine, I would stick with the system, I would stick with the 10 weeks because they were the conditions that, that um, it, you know, both that I'd decided upon and then were given to me because there was a publication date. And then the publication date becomes, you know, a fantastic sort of pressure because yeah, it, it, well, it's going to come out on that day, you know. It has, it has passion and it has this 
almost stream of consciousness feel to it uh, in a way with, without ever feeling unfocused it's utterly focused but very readable <laughs> unput downable ladies and like, gentlemen you know, the, the, the stream of consciousness thing is interesting because I, I, I you know I, I just want to put up a two or three line uh, talk about that because because the center I mean I love a cent I, one of the things I say in the book actually is one of the things that inspire me to be um, a writer is some of the great uses of rhythm that David Bowie, solemn perverse solemnity, you know, solemn perverse, mm -hmm. uh, solemn, perverse serenity, solemn perverse serenity, almost inspired single-handed me, uh, you know, me to be a writer. That, that idea that, that the shape of a sentence, the power of a sentence, the rhythm of a sentence was as important sometimes as what it's actually saying. So it seems to be that, that you know, that, that, that it isn't just done like that. I am, I am shaping I am structuring because that's important too but there is a sense that sometimes you're allowing your emotions and your feelings to, to get carried away to see where you get where that sentence ends up which is I, I, I like I think it's exciting I think it transmits a lot of, of energy and that again seems suitable to a book about David Bowie mm -hmm. well um, Paul's going to be signing this book next door so if you haven't already got a copy um, please do so I urge you to do so I'm gonna ask a few more questions and I'm gonna turn it over to you guys we have a microphone somewhere yes so um, we've, we've got about 15 minutes left so um, I'll ask a few more questions and then stick your hand up and I'm sure you've got questions to, to ask Paul I mean obviously if it's Bowie related even better but if, if you want to ask him about ZTT or whatever you know other other writing he's done then please fire away um, Apart from the codist and apart from the creator of Pokemon, um, uh, are there any Bowies at the moment? It's Kanye West? I mean, no. I think I think Alex Turner from Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, I don't know. Are there well, other in the eighties? We had we, we were sort of Madonna, Morrissey, Boy George, etc. But I think it was a bit like when John Peel died. To, to replace John Peel, it took about seventy-two different disc jockeys to be one John Peel. Six music. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Six music is John Peel. Well, it's not actually, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, um, it, yes. Um, and it's the same. Not enough happy hardcore. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like you know, it's, it's, it's 180, 190 different sorts of characters, and, and one of them might be Kanye, one of them might be most, you know, but but many, many other different facets to, to what he did. He was, um, you know, one of the, the things that I've particularly loved uh, as much as you can, but you know, in the last few months, you know, is that some of the appearances he started to make, for instance, his his artwork, you know, the parts of his art collection going up for sale and becoming, you know, David Bowie the collector and you, you wander to Sotheby's and see his extraordinary facility for, uh, for, 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 for choosing and selecting art and making up his own art history and it becomes a kind of Bowie performance. And now a lot of pop musicians, a lot of rock musicians, you wouldn't really get that from. You know, and I think it's interesting the way that he chopped and changed his musicians. You know, you think very early on about him running out of patience with Mick Ronson because Mick is the is the riff man. You know, he makes this great solid post Yardbirds electric guitar music, and Bowie's already moving on. He's moving into R and B in America. He's he's he's, he's mm -hmm. thinking of different ways of of playing the guitar that became so influential on post punk sound. Ronson's you know too stubborn and dogmatic to accept that, and that's a very rock attitude. Whereas Bowie had a much more of a jazz mentality as a musician. He was always changed like Miles Davis. He's always changing from album to album because he's always questing himself to create a different set of circumstances so even though it's pop and it's rock he, he's using a jazz mind to make it the way he uses rhythm sections and an instrumentalist is, is very much of a miles davis mentality uh, well, his career is almost bookended by jazz. I mean, uh, okay, yes, the skiffle yes. and, and basic R&B, but obviously one of his first loves was jazz, and Black Star has 
and that massive jazz well, absolutely. element and, and to that, it. And that um, wonderful um, obsession he had with the 10-minute instrument, you know, the 10-minute opening suite of an album. You know, he loved a 10-minute suite of, of often wonderful bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, and to some extent, you know, that you look at those early Charles Mingus albums that began with these 10-minute tracks about the rise and fall of humanity. Uh, and he's influenced by that. He's influenced by all sorts of kind of very esoteric classical music, uh, music and the way that you can apply very kind of complicated structures to a pop song. And, and this feeds into this wonderful belief he had that sometimes you, you could, you, you know, a pop song could be 10 minutes longer and go all over the shop, you know. And it's, it's definitely a, a jazz sensibility. And I think that's why the completion with Black Star was interesting because it was the most explicit use of that mentality to make his music. So it wasn't a jazz album, but, but more than most, you could really tell that he, that he had that kind of mind. The, the avant-garde way of, of using improvisation and, 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 and in a studio to create your songs is very jazz, but he just happened to come up with these fantastic pop songs. And right to the end, his, his knowledge of the event around the album, we've talked about the album, the ego, mm. the release, the genie, um, the next day and Blackstar, you can't, I mean, huge events around both, obviously, especially Blackstar. But, but uh, the next day was, was, was a fascinating use that he made. Once upon a time he was a, a master of the technique of announcing his arrival and being so visible. And this was almost in reverse, that in a world now that had caught up and could do that thing so easily, uh, make an album, release it, look like you're being controversial, look like you're being glam, look like you're being androgynous, look like you're being weird, but not really because now it's the establishment. It, it was a wonderful sort of opposite that he, you know, he created an event almost by disappearing and being sudden, which obviously has influenced a lot of those musicians now and they're craving for the new, the, the sudden, the unexpected, the unannounced mm-hmm. has become the, the thing, not hyping it up beforehand. So I, I, I think even to the end, he was, he was influencing how, how a lot of the modern entertainers are, are looking to create an event because he knew that was what the, that, that to him was his job almost to be special and in a world that, that suddenly wasn't so special anymore because so many people thought they could do it and do do it and the festivals are packed with people there's so much music so many albums so much he, he still wanted to find a way to, to, to recreate that sense of specialness which he obviously did you know uh, in the last three or four years mm-hmm. um what did you feel about the, the, the kind of outpouring of grief when he died? Um, I'd like your opinion. You make reference to sort of Diana-esque kind of outpourings. And I, I, I saw a lot of what now gets called virtue signaling. Yeah, um, virtue signaling. People, uh, no, no, I like David Bowie more than you did. And I was yeah. more upset than you were. I mean, but, but how did you feel? Did you, did you, did you feel it was... It was the right level of grief or, I mean, how did you feel about the, the shock of it happening and yeah. then the public's reaction to that? I think that the enormity of the response was, a, was a, a, a kind of genuine reaction to the fact that something quite remarkable had, got, had gone and, and, and he'd left. I mean, for me, my first reaction on the day, of course, was very much, you know, people were talking about, will you miss him? And which is one of the reasons I didn't really want to do these shows and what kind of loss is it? And oddly enough, because of the way he worked and because of what he'd done and because of the way he'd organised the last few years, I didn't feel loss or missing because there was an extraordinary release of energy. And it was like he'd never been more alive. And you would sit in the reception of the BBC, as I happened to that day, and all you could see on the screens was David Bowie. And he was more alive than he'd ever been in that sense. And in the the sense of the David Bowie he'd created, the, the, the object, the... 
the legend, you know, it, it, that was incredibly alive. You know, obviously a human being had died, but, but David Bowie, as we think of David Bowie, what, what he wanted us to think of him, what he thought of him, was never, never more alive in a way. And the songs had the most extraordinary life force embedded into them. They were, they were like little bits of humanity, as all great pieces of art are. And I think there was a lot of response to that and a lot of um, sort of similar reactions to me that it's important now how we usher in this era of history. Not, not being nostalgic or sentimental, but, but if it's important, then it's important how it's written into history because, you know, suddenly we find ourselves, as Paul Gambaccini once memorably called me, and I'll take it, a historian. And th there is a sense that that's important too. You know, it, it could be just turned into a series of songs that people get up on stage and sing in, in a slightly, it's a charity record sort of way, which I don't like, you know. Uh, but, but the idea of him, of him becoming part of history and a wider history, a, a cultural history and a bigger history of, of who we are as a people, I thought that it was important that we all, you know, we all play our role. And mm -hmm. I, I took my little role and other people tended to take theirs. But the Diana thing is, is fascinating and the idea that certainly the, the professional mourning thing starts to kick in a little bit. You know, the, the idea that, you know, the, the, uh, think about how much of that's going to happen over the next few years, because we've got half the Beatles to go, we've got Elton to go, we've got, you know, I don't mean to, you know, put a dampener on it, and Steve Wright, Steve Wright tore me off for doing this, but this is going to be a hell of a few years as they all drop <laughs> off, you know, and, and, and how are we going to deal with that? And in a way, Bowie kind of helped us sort of understand how to deal with that in a way, which I think was important. You know, it wasn't like a messy death, a Michael Jackson scandal, Prince scandal. It was incredibly elegant. And I think that was something, you know, it sounds, you know, it can be fanciful to suggest, but I think it was something very much part of his thinking to an extent, to as a control freak, absolutely, you know, to control and organize how, how the end would be so that his entrance into showbiz immortality would be incredibly powerful, you know. Mm -hmm. One final question from me. Uh, Doing the exhibition and, and having written about him countless times and being so connected to him, um, how did you get to know him? Did you ever really spend any time with him or was it all done via email and so on? And if so, Glenn Branca, like? the, the great American guitar player, made, made a very good point about how he said that when you meet David Bowie, he, David Bowie will always give you the David Bowie that you want. And I think it's very true. He was very good at that. You know, he, in interviews with, with rock journalists and everything, he was always very good at giving people what they wanted. Whoever he met, you always get the story of people meeting their David Bowie. So he was very good at acting that role constantly, of being the David Bowie that, that you wanted. I got the feeling the, the Victoria and Albert Museum were always horrified as it dawned on them that David Bowie himself wasn't going to come over to help them curate the exhibition. And indeed, it was me that walked through the door to their horror, you know. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of that... Um, uh, when Bette Midler was on Michael Parkinson and, and Bette Midler was uh, having a chat with Michael Parkinson and Michael Jar Parkinson said he was a journalist and Bette Midler said, what? You're a journalist? Oh, how dreary! I thought you were in show business! <laughs> and, and, and I got that feeling from the V&A that, that that's what happened. And, and they were horrified that David Bowie wasn't coming over and, and having brainstorming meetings about his exhibition. And, and, and that, that was kind of interesting. And then I started communicating with him in a wonderfully indirect way. And up to that point, for various reasons, I'd never met him. There was a couple of close occasions, not least the, uh, the time that he appeared on the Mark Boland show in 1977. When Mark, I got friendly with Mark and he'd invited me to go to the show. Uh, being filmed in Manchester, and I lived in Manchester. Come down, you know, it's going to be a great show. He didn't tell me why. Uh, and I'd been down a couple of times. Anyway, I didn't go. I interviewed Chris Lee of Alberto Elos Trios Paranoia from Didsbury <laughs> because it, I felt that it was important that I did the piece for the enemy. And that was the day that David Bowie 
went to the Mark Boland show and appeared the day I didn't turn up. And I thought, well, never mind, I'll, I'll see Mark again. And he died about nine days later. So that, that was the one close occasion, a couple of others. And then as, it, as we were working together on, on the exhibition and, and you were getting approval or not in certain ways that were wonderfully enigmatic and I really adored, I, I suddenly decided that, that I wasn't going to meet David Bowie and that this was David Bowie giving me the David Bowie I wanted. He wasn't going to give me, you know, a half-hour interview like a rock journalist would get, you know, and you get David Bowie being David Bowie. You know, we weren't going to meet for 20 minutes discussing the arcania of a, of a certain part of the section of the exhibition. The David Bowie that I really wanted was, was the mystery, someone I would never meet. And, you know, even afterwards I thought, well, I still meet him, you know, there's still time. But, but, but looking back, that's how I've decided it was. You know, he gave me the David Bowie that he knew I wanted, that wouldn't be spoiled by the fact that... David Bloody Bowie would turn up, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and sometimes it could be a bit David Bowie, if you know what I mean. So he, he left me with this grand illusion, which uh, I'm very happy with. Excellent. Um, right, okay, we've got for five minutes Wait. or so for questions. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Who, who, who wants a question? Didn't know anybody was over there. Yes, here in the front row. You don't need a microphone. Okay. I wonder if there is a musician, an artist currently, whose work is as meaningful, as inspiring to you as David Bowie was, David Bowie's was, or is? <laughs> um, or is it really about the time? Is it about the age of Bowie? Is it about encountering that person at an age when you have got that space in your head to really well, take I it on? I think there's definitely an element of right time, right place. And my right time, right place was being 15 at Ziggy Stardust. Other people have their own right time. They might be 15 at Let's Dance or 15 at... Uh, well, not even 15 yet, they'll come to David Bowie. So I, I, I have that particular story, you know, which is important, I think, the, the context, really, of how it happened, you know. And now, because of the breakdown in linear time, you know, for me, I'm, I'm as likely to find it in Stravinsky as I am in, in anybody now, you know, in Frank Ocean or whatever, you know, because to an extent, I understand the principle and I understand why suddenly it's on the BBC News, the discussion of the new Frank Ocean album. But on the other hand, by that happening, it can't be the same because it's something else, but it's not the same, because, because it, it immediately lacks that quality of it creeping up on people, having a subversive element. If it's immediately co-opted by the BBC News, it can't possibly have that kind of strange growth. You know, like Heroes was interesting. You know, when Heroes was released, it, it wasn't really, well, it wasn't much of a hit. No one kind of got it. It, was, it sounded a bit weary, a bit forlorn, you know, because in a way he was thinking 30, 40 years ahead. You know, it takes time to happen. And, and so there's that sense that I think has, has changed slightly. So with the breakdown of, of linear time, the breakdown of chronology, the fact that all music is available at once, I tend to find a different way of mapping things out. And, and anything now all belongs in the same time. Whereas very much in this period, and I try and make that very clear in the 70s, it was very much moving forward, moving forward. And anything three months behind disappeared. You couldn't hear it anymore, really. You couldn't get to it. It got deleted. That movement has gone. So it's, it's definitely, for me, something very different now, you know. They'll probably be able to conceive of a longevity, but it's different than we can imagine at the moment. And at the moment, I still believe they're trying too hard to follow these grooves. And for me, these kind of grooves have, have run out because of the technology that's come in place. These grooves were great with this technology, that the recording studio as it was, the, 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 the way of cutting a record. That, that, but, but now there's a different way of, of transmitting. It needs, for me, it needs different kind of grooves, you know. And, and, and an immensity that I think can... I mean, I love the idea of this. I don't want everybody to be a star. I hate that. I like the Christ figure, you know, obviously, coming from this generation. And I, I do like the idea of something special, rather than everybody apparently being special, which, of course, can't be the case. You know, there's something's got to rise up. And I, I think my belief is something will, with this 
new technology and a more poetic way of using it, not just in an engineering way, you know. Yes, question here. Is there any truth in the rumours that the David Bowie is expressions coming to the Dundee V&A for the opening? Yeah, I don't know, actually. It, it's, it sounds plausible. Where have you heard this truth? <laughs> well, I've heard it from a few sources. Uh, I know someone that's in uh, the art galleries. Yeah. And they've mentioned that the, I think the V&A is due to open in Dundee in 2017. Right. And there's thought that the David Bowie is, is going to be the opening yeah. exhibition. It makes a lot of sense. And of course, it should come to Scotland because, yeah. you know, yeah. a lot of people... I, I, I've heard that rumour as well, but yeah. I, I don't know if it's any more than a rumour, but yeah. let's, let's hope. And, and th when I saw it, it was phenomenal. I mean, I'm sure most people... What's that? <laughs> well, a lot of people, you know, claim David Bowie. I was in Oxford the other day, and Oxford were trying to claim David Bowie, but I think there's a lot of Scotland in David Bowie, for mm -hmm. sure, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? He, he, yeah. he definitely had that kind of, you know, and he loved coming up here, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, I think we can have maybe a couple more. Yes, lady here. I heard it too, and I work for the government. Um, <coughs> Whoa! <laughs> but not with that. So imagine today is the opening day, and I'm phoning you up from Dundee V&A, what is David Bowie today? <laughs> that is both the best and the worst question I've That's ever That's the asked. hardest question, <laughs> for sure. What you must understand as a poet, uh, I, I take time to dwell and, you know... So, uh, yes, D David Bowie is delaying. <laughs> yes, a question from this gentleman. Uh, thanks. Uh, as the world expert on David Bowie is, were you behind changing the message from the one that was when you went out the museum in London to the one that I recently seen in Bologna where it says David Bowie is and, and scored out through it all around you forever now? Was that you? Possibly, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and any more? Any more questions? He's one more I think we can get. He's implying there's another David Bowie is expert somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you'll be the last question, and then it's signing time. So it's for the, for the audience, and I believe it's being recorded as well. So, so can you hear me here? Yeah. Um, obviously, Paul, we grew up in more or less the same era. Do you think Bowie's important in the sense only from the lens of, of people like us who, who, who experienced that? Or do you think he's actually an important artist across the kind of centuries? Well, I think he's an important artist across the centuries. And I think also it does change as, as it's gone through the, the decades and different people have come to him at different times. I think that's also key. You know, there's a timelessness about him, I think, that wasn't only just timeless within this 60, 50, 50 60 year period, but beyond that, I, I think. And, and that's why I'm interested in the idea of history and when things get reshaped and settle down and, and there's, there's a bigger view of what's just happened and how that fits into the previous few hundred years or whatever. You know, where, where he, I, I'm interested in that. I'm not really interested in where he fits in rock history or that very narrow kind of thing that is already beginning to shrivel up. I'm interested where he fits in in a much wider sense. And I do believe that as an artist, you know, uh, predominantly using music as his material, he was for the centuries. You know, it, it seems as if it was just for this period because it was pop music and he was a pop star. But I do believe that it was beyond that. And I think it will become apparent and certainly something I was interested in, in beginning to, to, to explore when I, when I wrote the book. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. Um, pop round to the signing tent, and buy a book, chat to Paul, and he'll sign it for you. And ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Paul Morley. Thank you.
Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.